Good morning. Um, thanks for being here. The goal of this is to do some teaching on baptism and then have a discussion of what baptism means. And uh, we've got a baptism on the bay service in a couple of weeks. And so we are encouraging people who haven't been baptized to use that day as a day to be baptized. And so there's an immediate way to respond if you haven't been baptized. Uh, but if you're just here because you want to learn uh, and you want to step a little bit closer toward an understanding of what baptism is and what it means, or if you have questions about anything related to baptism, especially you know baptizing you know our kids and why we do that, this is going to be an environment for us to do that. And so um, we have a bit of a time. Uh, let's see, we've got a time that we have to end and it's going to be around 10 o'clock so because i have to do the lord's supper downstairs during the service and so we'll keep our ears open to what's going on during the so there'll be this extended period of time where um where bill will be preaching and we won't hear much of anything from downstairs and then there'll be a song and we all need to listen for that song so it's the song after the sermon which is when they do the offering and that's when we need to be done and i gotta walk down so and y'all are welcome to come downstairs and you know observe the Lord's Supper, you know, with the rest of the church uh, after we're done here. So, but we'll have. Um, so, what I want to do as we start out is I've got a lot of content that I can communicate, and baptism is one of these amazing things. It's one of the two sacraments that Jesus gave to the church. It's one of the two tangible things, physical things, you know. So much of following Jesus calls for faith. So much of it calls for trusting in who Jesus is and trusting in a God that we can't see. Um, and in the world of faith that Jesus asked us to live in, Jesus gave us two things that are physical, that are touchable, that we can feel. Um, and those two things the church has called sacraments. Okay, and when a Presbyterian church talks about sacraments, we don't mean the same thing that Catholic churches mean um, about sacraments, but a sacrament is a visible sign and seal of God's covenant promises. So God makes promises to us in the gospel, and the sacraments are designed to give us assurance. They're designed to help us know that because we believe in Jesus, we have all the promises. And so the two sacraments that God has given to us are baptism and then the Lord's Supper. So in baptism, it's the, it's the washing ceremony where we identify with Jesus. And, um, and there's all kinds of images that, that the New Testament uses to fill baptism in with gospel themes. And then we have the Lord's Supper where we eat and drink. You know, baptism is typically a one-time thing where you're entering into God's family. So the, the adoption ceremony. And then the Lord's Supper is an ongoing sacrament that we observe every week. Not every church does that, but we do it every week because it's the ongoing nourishment that we receive as we walk with Jesus. And so there is so much <laughs> that I could give you in terms of information, biblical data, themes, um, all kinds of things that I could give you. And I'm going to stay, I'm going to do two things. One, I'm going to try to give you an overview of the whole picture of baptism today. But then two is I want to answer the specific questions that you might have. And so if there are any questions that you have that you want to make sure we answer today, I want to know what those are. So I want to ask, yeah, what questions do you have? I want to write them down and make sure that we hit those questions as we talk today. I'm not gonna lock it. So, are there questions that any of you have come today with, or questions that you think of now, John? I had a question about uh, uh, just like methods, like full immersion first, like you know, I was baptized as a baby. Yeah. And you've seen other people get dunked and yeah. you're like, does mine still count? Because that yeah. seems so much cooler, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. So we call that the mode of baptism. You said method and theological because people argue about this stuff, sometimes in unhelpful ways, sometimes in helpful ways. And so, okay, I'll, I'll answer the, the mode question, whether it's pouring or sprinkling or dunking. We'll talk about that. Other questions? 
No. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, infant baptism is something that we practice as Presbyterians. Again, our practice as Presbyterians of infant baptism is very different from what the Roman Catholic Church believes. And so, yes, we'll talk specifically about that. And that's a subject where we know that as Presbyterians, we're kind of, we're out of step. It's always hard because it used to be that there were more Presbyterians in our country than other churches that didn't baptize infants. But now the sort of the numbers have gone differently. I think the Baptists have done a much better job of sharing their faith than we have. And so there's a lot more Baptists in the world that don't baptize their children or their infants. And so, um, so we're out of step with the mainstream of today's in terms of numbers. Um, but yes, so I'll definitely talk specifically about that. And, uh, and, and as with everything we're going to talk about today, if what we talk about isn't satisfying, ask. And then I also have other information that I can give you to follow up for further study. And yeah, go ahead. I have a question. So, yeah. uh, and like, uh, I'm not sure if it's part of the Presbyterian faith or not, but like the Nicene Creed, uh-huh. it says in there, like, the acknowledgement of like one baptism for forgiveness of sins. So, like, being re baptized, like, is that just like a recommitment, but is there any other kind of significance that's attached to that? Okay, yeah, so the, the subject of rebaptizing, this is awesome because question number four we're going to talk about is what does it mean to be baptized by our children? And then question three is if I've been baptized before as an infant or I stopped following Jesus, should I get rebaptized? So we'll talk about that. Um, but then specifically the Nicene Creed yeah. statement of does baptism actually forgive sins? Like, is that the question? Like, what does that mean? If you're rebaptized. Oh, if you're rebaptized. If you're rebaptized, you know, I guess just like the actual creed says, one baptism. Right, okay, okay. So, like, if a second baptism, maybe. Yeah, I, yeah, I've had friends who have been terrified about rebaptism because they thought they were committing a grievous sin because the Bible says one baptism. So, even outside the Nicene Creed, Ephesians 4 says there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And, uh, and so, based on that verse, even beyond the Creed, um, yeah, is what does it mean to be rebaptized, and how does God think about that? We'll talk. Yeah, we'll talk specifically about that too. Um, okay. Other questions? And if you think of stuff on the way, just ask. You know, don't don't hesitate to ask. Cool. Let's dive in, and we'll uh, we'll see where we go. Um, so first, what is baptism? Um, baptism is a water ceremony where God responds to our commitment to Him by committing himself to us. And so in baptism, God tells us that we are forgiven and that we are filled with his Holy Spirit. So we get a new start and a new heart. Um, And so baptism, there is a slight difference when you baptize adults who are expressing their own faith in Jesus versus baptizing children. There's all kinds of overlap, but there's a little bit of there's a little bit of difference in terms of meaning um, because adults, when they're baptized, are professing their own faith in Jesus. And children, when they're baptized, or infants when they're baptized, they are being baptized before they are able to express their own faith in Jesus. But um, the Bible, when the Bible talks about baptism, it says that baptism communicates. It's like God preaching to us that we are, that we are committed to him and he's committed to us that we promise to follow him and he promises to be our God and for us to be his people um, and all of his promises come to us, including forgiveness of sins, including um, the gift of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so this is what the the, the New Testament says baptism is. Um, And some of the verses, I mean, Acts 2, 38 to 39 are places where it says that when the people heard Peter preaching, they said, oh my goodness, what do we do? Like they felt convicted. And Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children, for as many as God will call to himself. And so in sort of the first proclamation of the new covenant baptism message, it said that baptism is designed to 
wash away your sins and to give you the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and so that's what baptism means. Now, yeah, so, and what's interesting is that in the discussions about baptism, what's more challenging isn't what the Bible says, but it's how do we understand what the Bible means in light of things like, what if our children grow up and don't believe? Or what if someone is an adult and they get baptized and then they fall away? Like, what do those promises from God mean? And that's a, a little bit of a different question. Those are important questions that we want to talk through, but we want to start first with what the Bible says. And in Acts 2, 38 and 39, the Bible says that baptism is this water ceremony that where God is, where we are repenting and God is giving us both forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. So that's how the things go together. Dale, you have a question? So, like, there, with what it says in the Bible, does it say, like, so it doesn't say, like, ways of doing it? With regard like, to the mode? Like, say elders or th through church. Like, it doesn't have specifics. It just says, like, a ceremony of, like, like washing away of sins and having the Holy Spirit come upon you? Well, it seems like in the New Testament, the people who actually do the baptizing are the ones that are in leadership in the church. Right. And so it's, um, and, and from the Great Commission, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gathers the 12 to him, and he says, go therefore into all the nations and make disciples. So he says, go make disciples, and then he tells how to do that. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Baptizing them in the name of the Holy Spirit, or the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, um, and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. And so he gives the 12 the authority to bring new people into the, into the, the community that's following Jesus. And so when you, and when we look in the book of Acts, it's, the it's the leaders of the church who are doing the baptizing right. and so um, so when i say it's a water ceremony it's a water ceremony done by the ordained elders of the church and yeah. in our in our church we believe that pastors have to be the ones who do the baptizing is there biblical of it saying it or is it just like well it's certainly the practice right yeah. it, uh, it's the practice in the bible there's a <laughs> there's a deeper it's a great question because there's a deeper sort of theology of ordination that comes from the old testament that seems to be carried on in the new testament that you'd want to look at because there were things in the old testament with the way that worship worked that were strictly for particular people that had been ordained to to lead and it seems like what Jesus is doing with the 12 apostles who then hand is the same kind of ordination. So what Jesus does for the apostles seems similar to what was done for the Levites in the Old Testament and for the priests and for the high priest. There was this ordination process that they went through to qualify them to lead in the worship of God's people. And Jesus seems to do the same thing with the apostles. And then the apostles hand their authority very explicitly in the New Testament to the pastors and the elders of the church. Okay. So that's not like here's the Bible verse that says only pastors are allowed to baptize. But it seems like it's very clear that from the Old Testament understanding of ordination to what Jesus did with the disciples to then or to the apostles, what the apostles then did to the elders and the pastors, okay. you see this transfer of authority that comes from God and because if baptism is communicating and this is partly why we say that only pastors can baptize is that if baptism is God communicating something then you want to make sure that the people who are qualified to represent God and his word are the ones doing it does that make sense so and it's not it doesn't mean that every believer doesn't have the Holy Spirit and that every believer can't read the Bible and understand it and benefit from it, but the leaders, like God wants the leaders to be the ones to administer the sacraments. So Yeah, and I have a question back to what is baptism. Uh -huh. So when John is talking about, like, Jesus, uh, he says that the person that is going after me is going to baptize you with... 
with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Yeah. And uh-huh. Does that mean that it's more of like, like when he says Holy Spirit and then fire, that just doesn't make sense to me just because like he's using an element versus like, uh, yeah, because like it, it would make a lot of sense just for it to say Holy Spirit versus like actually using the word fire. Yeah. Like, like, does that just mean, like, a metaphor or, like, a simile or whatever for, like, being consumed for, like, the wine to follow Jesus? So it could mean that. You know, it could just be that the fire is the symbol. Like, here's the physical and then here's the spiritual. You know, here's, yeah. the, here's the reality, here's the metaphor, right? Um, so, or is there another place where those people that, like, where people were baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire? Is there a place where that happens in the Bible? Anybody know? Say again? At Pentecost, that's right. And so when the Spirit came at Pentecost, it came in a new way. It came in a fuller way than it had ever come. And it was given to people who had, who weren't in the class of people that could have received it before. So in the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon the apostles, or came upon the prophets, they came upon the kings, and it came upon the priests. And there's this one passage, I think it's in Numbers 11, where um, Joshua's freaking out because there's all these people who weren't ordained, who were prophesying. And he goes to Moses and he goes, Moses, Moses, we're in big trouble because there's all these people that are prophesying. And Moses says, I wish everyone would prophesy. Like I wish the spirit of God would be on everyone. And that promise comes true at Pentecost where the Holy Spirit that had a very restricted sort of ministry in the Old Testament is now given to everyone in the New Testament. And when that happened at Pentecost, um, it came with fire. Like the image of the fire was, it gave them the ability to speak in tongues. And so I think that was a special thing that that, that John the Baptist was talking about um, at Pentecost. He was predicting what would happen when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Um, And so that's what I would, so I would say that's what was referred to there. like a few questions off of that. Like, what is Pentecost, and then is it shown in the Old or the New Testament, like of that happening? Yeah, like, so just, in Acts, like and, when they like had like group and they were just being able to like. Okay. Yeah, when they could speak in tongues, right. it says that tongues of fire were like appeared above them, okay. and they were able to speak in languages that they didn't know how to speak. So, yeah. All right, so let's keep let's keep going, and um, but great questions. So, so that's what baptism is. Um, how do I know if I'm ready for baptism? Um, the only requirement for baptism is that you've turned the direction of your life to follow Jesus. That's what it means to repent, Acts 2, 38 and 39. And turning means, one, confess your sins, two, trust Jesus' death and resurrection for your forgiveness, and then three, commit to following Jesus as your God and Savior. So this is the good news that you'll hear over and over and over again at our church because by God's grace, we continue to have folks who come and don't understand, you know, haven't heard the gospel sometimes or haven't understood the gospel, but this is what it takes. And so if you've turned the direction of your life to follow Jesus, put him first, trusting his death and resurrection for your forgiveness, and you're committed to following him, then you are eligible to be baptized. Then three, if I've been baptized before, either one is an infant or If I stop following Jesus for a time and now I've recommitted my life to him, should I get baptized again? So the question of rebaptism is a big one. And so, and here is our response. You don't need to. Um, God doesn't expect you to, but you may if you want. Um, If you're following Jesus now, then God's promises in your previous baptisms have come true. So if you were baptized as an infant, your parents were dedicating you to Jesus and God was committing to your parents and to you, okay? He made these commitments to you. And so if you're now following him, those baptism promises have come true. So to think about this in, a, in an illustrative way, once you're adopted, you don't need to be readopted. You could have an estrangement with your parents, you could run away, you could leave them for years and years and years, but once you've been adopted, when you reconcile with your parents, you don't have to get readopted. And so your commitment, your current commitment to Jesus, like if you're following him today, um, 
it honors, like your current commitment honors Jesus and it also honors your previous baptisms. So if you're following Jesus today and you have been baptized in the past, you're, you're honoring Jesus and you're honoring your past baptisms. So you don't have to get rebaptized. Um, however, however, if you'd like to publicly recommit to Jesus, you absolutely may. Okay, because Jesus is honored anytime we publicly identify with him. Okay, so for some people, it really helps them to stand before God and the church family and to rededicate their lives. And so if you'd like to do this, Jesus would be honored by your decision. Um, I, again, I've talked to people who, have, who get really, really, really like tense about people being rebaptized because they think in some way it invalidates their previous baptism, it invalidates their parents because their parents you know, brought them to be baptized, or it invalidates the church they were part of when they got baptized before. And, you know, and, and I've, I've kind of gone down that road and tried to sort of interact and, and sort of argue that point and find out what the truth is. And I realized when, we, when someone wants to get rebaptized, what are they saying? They're saying, I'm following Jesus today. We've had a falling out. Or I didn't understand what I was doing before. And I would love to stand up in front of God and his family and say, I'm with Jesus. <laughs> like, how is Jesus going to respond to that? He's going to say, come on, like, let's do it together, you know? Um, and so <clears throat> God is not dishonored by someone who wants to be rebaptized. God's saying, if, you'll, if anybody will stand in front of anybody else and say, I'm following Jesus, you know, with my life, God is honored by that. And I think that's how we should think about people that want to get rebaptized. Um, and so the... Um, so now we in our church, we would think about this as a covenant renewal ceremony between you and Jesus. It's sort of like married people who choose to renew their vows. So, I mean, think about it. If two people say, oh, 25th anniversary, we want to renew our wedding vows. No one's going to go, oh, well, that's dumb. You know, no one's going to say, oh, well, wait, does that mean that you weren't married before? Well, no, of course not. But we want to re-up. We want to declare today that we are reaffirming our, uh, ourselves to each other, right? And so renewing the, you know, your wedding vows is something that people do. And, um, and that's what getting rebaptized would be. And it's cool because in the Bible, there are places when God and his people make covenants. And then there are other places where God and his people renew their covenants. And so covenant renewal is something that is part of the Bible. It's part of a relationship with God. There are times, I mean, when yeah, there's a lot of them. I can, give you, I can give you a paper that I wrote on covenant renewal and how it actually works out. I think Sunday worship services are a weekly renewal of our covenant with God. And so we do it already. Every time we come to church on Sunday, we're re-upping. Every time we're called to confess our sins, we're in a sense recommitting our lives to Jesus. And so, um, so covenant renewal is something that is, can be a wonderful way to continue and to deepen your walk with God. And if you wanna be re-baptized, we would see it as you being, you're, you're renewing your covenant with God. So. Would that be maybe similar to like it could be so in in catholic churches confirmation is when you receive the holy spirit like you haven't had the holy spirit up to that point and so in the catholic church is different because i guess baptism is the sort of the beginning your entrance into the church your first communion is not receiving the Holy Spirit, which is weird because you have some, you can, you can feast on the body and the blood of Jesus, but you don't have the Holy Spirit yet. Confirmation is later where you, you receive the Holy Spirit. Um, so I wouldn't say it's confirmation if you're renewing your covenant. Um, but the word confirmation, if you want to use a rebaptism as a way to confirm that you are in, then the word is a good definition for what's happening there, but I would want to dissociate it from what the Roman Catholics believe about the confirmation in their church. So I wasn't sure if you were asking because of Roman Catholic confirmation uh, or, or, Episcopalian. or Episcopalian. Yeah, so it seems like in the Episcopal church, yeah, I guess I, I'm not familiar with what they believe about confirmation. So I couldn't speak to that. I grew up Catholic. That's why I know more about Catholicism. Okay. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's you renewing covenant. Um, the chances are that if you want to 
be rebaptized, you probably are already believing in Jesus, and your faith is what saves you. You know, the baptism is just God proclaiming to you and giving you assurance that these promises really are true. But you could have had that assurance just from your faith alone. So, um, so if you're renewing covenant, that's God. Yeah, he's adding his assurance to your faith. So, um, so yeah, so I think like last year when we did baptism on the bay, we had some people being baptized for the first time. We had some people being, some infants being baptized. And then we also had some folks that were recommitting themselves and renewing a, co- you know, renewing a covenant with God. And we say all the above. And we think that baptism and rebaptism can be ways to help your faith to grow and uh, experience God. So <clears throat> any other questions on that? Okay. So what does it mean to baptize my children? So baptism for our children is a celebration that when we commit to Jesus, God commits to us and to our children. In Genesis 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham that spans the entire Old Testament. So God makes this covenant in Genesis. It's actually from chapters 12 through 22 that you see God's covenant with Abraham. Um, In 17, he specifically um, talks about elements of this covenant. And then for the rest of the Old Testament, and I would say even in the New Testament, for the rest of the Bible, God's covenant with Abraham is seen as a model for how God relates to his people. So from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis all the way to the end, God is committing, committing to believers and their children. And so Genesis 17, 1 through 14, makes it clear that God's covenant promises made with believers and their children. And so at the beginning of the new covenant church in Acts 2, 38, 39, Peter makes it clear that God's new covenant promise is made with believers and their children. Because that's where Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, for the promise is for you and for your children. And what's interesting is that if you look at the Greek in the New Testament, in Acts 2.39, where it says the promise is for you and your children, the Greek is actually the same Greek as the Greek translation of Genesis 17. This might be a little bit scholarly, but people really argue over whether or not we should baptize our children, and so I want you to know that there's really sound biblical reasons for this. in at one point they translated the hebrew old testament into greek and so they translated genesis 17 these promises god made to abraham and to his children they translated those promise that, that that passage into greek and so when peter gets up and preaches on in acts 2 at pentecost he actually is quoting genesis 17 when he says the promises for you and your children he uses the same greek phrase that's used in genesis 17 10 different times and so it's very clear that Peter is saying this new covenant promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit and what Jesus is doing with his new followers, this new group of followers, it's like what God did with Abraham in the Old Testament. And if the sign of God's covenant with Abraham, which was circumcision, was given to believers and their children, when Peter says the promise is for you and your children, in Acts chapter 2, he's saying that the sign of the new covenant, which is baptism, should also be applied to believers and their children. Does that make sense? I mean, you might not agree with it, but like that's, that's one pretty strong, I think, argument. There's lots of other arguments, biblical arguments, that could be made. Go ahead. Just a question on that. So does that then, is that a little different than the requirements? Like in number two, when you're saying the only requirement is to turn the direction? Yes. That's where you're saying the difference Yep, because kids can't turn the direction of their life to follow Jesus when they're eight days old or two days old or four months old or, or whatever. And so, um, so let me come back to that because let's read these next two paragraphs and then we'll, um, and then we'll, we'll come back to that specifically. Um, so the rest of the book of Acts shows this, shows that God is... God's new covenant promises made with believers and their children. The rest of the book of Acts shows this, that when an adult commits to Jesus, God commits to them and their children. And we see this throughout Acts and in 1 Corinthians, that households are baptized and households include children. Like the word household is actually a technical term that's used throughout the ancient world. And it described both parents, children, and, and really everybody who was part of that household, including children. So when households are baptized, 
everybody who read that in the first century would have assumed and would have been right to assume that if a parent got especially the head of a household was was converted and baptized the whole family would have been baptized as well um, I've, I've like worked on several documents in preparation for this class some of which I will send to you if you have questions about and I wanted to make sure that I didn't say this already later so um, the idea is that when adults believe in Jesus they are going to have an, inf an impact on their children especially when both parents commit their child is going to grow up believing in Jesus and the idea is that they grow up never really knowing a day when they didn't believe in Jesus now they have to grow up and receive the faith like they have to grow up and profess the faith themselves but they're going to grow up in the faith that's kind of how that's how the Bible sees the children of believers um, and so <clears throat> let me <clears throat> let me it gets more explicit in this next paragraph so if one or more parents is one committed to Jesus and two committed to raising their child in the faith and in the church then God and the church commit to helping parents raise the child to walk with Jesus so the Bible says that the children of believers have the assurance of heaven 2nd Samuel 12 23 is the passage where David loses his son his son who's just born dies and David expresses great confidence that he will one day be with his son again he says my son can't come back here but I will go to him so you have the child of a believing parent and the parent has assurance that his child is in heaven then children are called to obey their parents out of the power that comes from Jesus so Ephesians 6 1 says children obey your parents in the Lord and in Ephesians, in the Lord means out of the fullness of your relationship with Jesus. And so uh, children are also welcomed by Jesus in Matthew 19, 13 to 15. And they are considered holy in 1 Corinthians 7, 14. And so all of these blessings are communicated to parents and their children in baptism. So in our church, we encourage parents and we help them to teach their children to grow, to express their own faith in Jesus. And when children are able to express the faith for themselves, then they are able to begin taking communion. And so we believe in our church that when children can profess their own faith, then that it's not necessarily that that's when they receive the Holy Spirit, but that's when they can come and start taking the Lord's Supper. And that can happen at whatever age a parent feels like. I mean, the, the two qualifications there are we ask parents to say, like, does your child have a sense of the gospel and do they have a sense that they believe it? Like, do they know who Jesus is and do they have a sense of their sin and have they confessed their sin? Um, and then have you seen any evidence of the Holy Spirit working in them? And so that's what we ask parents to look for. And at the, at the age when that happens, then parents can bring their kids to meet with one of the elders to talk through their faith in Jesus and then come to the Lord's table. And so we're, we're there confirming the faith that they're, that they're expressing. Um, so, okay, so that's, I know that's a lot. And what other questions do you have about this with baptizing infants? <clears throat> And if you think of other questions, I mean, I literally have a reader that I've put together, and some of them are articles that I've written, some of them are the best articles that I've read that help us understand how, I mean, really just help us understand the biblical case for baptizing our infants. I'd be happy to share with you anything that, uh, that you're interested in on that. Um, so yeah, you can ask me, this is my email address, or Madison, she's... Um, an administrative support so if you send her an email she can also get you the resources that uh, that we have um, on this subject too, page three of this this is an email that we send out to our parents before their children are baptized um, and it's just us helping our parents understand a little bit more about what the significance of that moment in our church service is you know, it has the promises that the vows that parents take, it has the vows the congregation takes, and it just talks about how, like just the wonder that God has blessed our children so much that they would grow up in a home where Jesus is honored, where the parents are 
not perfect, but the parents are communicating by their life and by their deeds that they're following Jesus. And they're both teaching their children and they're showing their, their children how to follow Jesus. And so that's what that email is. We're not going to read through it, but that's just, this is something that we send to our parents before their children get baptized. So, again, any other questions on that? Cool, okay. So, question five. If I've been baptized before in a different kind of church, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Mormon, Jehovah's Witnesses, do I have to get rebaptized? So the answer to this is theological. Um, we believe that if you've been baptized in a church in the name of the triune God, <clears throat> the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as this God has revealed himself in the Bible, then you don't need to be rebaptized. So there's a lot of stuff in that statement um, because, well, so yeah, let me just keep reading and let me talk about it. So we believe that the Roman Catholic Church misunderstands the Bible on some very important issues, but we believe that their understanding of who God is, one God revealed in three persons, is correct. So people who have been baptized in the Roman Catholic or Orthodox churches do not need to be rebaptized, although they may choose to be if they want. So see question three about being rebaptized, right? So if they want to renew their covenant, and a lot of times that happens, people will say, I never understood the gospel before. I feel like I was nowhere near Jesus. I mean, that was my experience in the Catholic church. I grew up in the Catholic church and had no, <laughs> I obeyed God when it was convenient for me to obey God, which means that I wasn't obeying God at all, you know? And so I got rebaptized when I became a Christian. Um, but that was also because the church that I was a part of told me I had to. And uh, so, but, so you can if you'd like to, but you don't have to if you've been baptized in a Roman Catholic or Orthodox, Orthodox churches because they believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They believe that there's one God in three persons. They believe that Jesus was both God, the one God, and human. And so their understanding of who God is is the same, relatively is the same as ours. And so you wouldn't need to get rebaptized because you've already been adopted by the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For people, though, who have been baptized in Mormon or Jehovah's Witness assemblies, we believe they need to be rebaptized because those assemblies believe something fundamentally different about the person of God and his work in salvation. And so we'd love to spend time in conversation with anyone who has questions about this. Our goal is not to fight or argue theology, but to recognize it's that there are sometimes disagreements that are significant. We believe that committing to Jesus in our church is a new commitment that calls people in those assemblies to be baptized into a new relationship with God. So the reason why is that the Mormon understanding of Father, Son, and Spirit are very, very different from what we think the Bible teaches. Um, and the understanding of the person of Jesus in the Jehovah's Witness um, congregations and, and I don't yeah they're not a denomination uh, but in the Jehovah's Witness community the, their view of Jesus is very different from our view of Jesus and so because of that we would want you to be rebaptized into the name of the God that we worship because we think it's a different God questions about that okay then um in your baptism, um, we, so we like the idea of people sharing their story. And so for adults, we encourage them to share the story of their spiritual journey. And so if you want to get baptized in our church or rebaptized, um, we think it's really powerful for, for you and also for our church to just to hear about your life and what has brought you to this point of wanting to be baptized or rebaptized. And so we encourage people um, to, to do like a three to four minute version of their testimony where they talk about your life before committing to Jesus, how you came to commit to following Jesus, and then how your life has changed since you began to follow Jesus. Um, and if you're not comfortable sharing your story yourself, um, we would love to hear your story and then we can share some of your story with our church to encourage them and have them get to know your story a little bit. Um, so that the church can be encouraged by what God's doing in your life. And when it comes to children, um, we have a set of promises that parents make when their children are baptized. 
And so this is, because honestly, we baptize children because of the faith of the parents, because the Bible says that if parents believe, then their children are holy. That's 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. It says, if one or both parents are Christian, then the child, their children are holy. And so, um, so it's, it's the faith of the parents. And if, and if you think about it practically, it, it makes sense because if you have one or more believing parents, the children are gonna grow up being exposed to the Christian faith, being brought up to believe in Jesus. They're gonna see and they're gonna, you know, they'll probably be part of a church. And I know that there are exceptions to that and it doesn't always work out, but it doesn't always work out for anybody who gets baptized. There are adults who fall away in the same way that there are children who grow up and then leave the faith. But what we believe is that our children will grow up in the faith. They'll grow up believing. They'll believe in Jesus way before they even know that they could choose to not believe in Jesus. You know, um, it's not until the kids get older that they realize like, oh wait, hold on. Like, I don't have to believe this. There's other options out there. Wait a second. Like, I'm not sure if I believe this or not. I mean, and if that ever happens, they end up leaving the faith that they grew up in. And that's the image that the Bible has, is that they end up, you know, and, and, and they're broken off. They, um, but they leave the faith that they grew up in. And so, so these are the promises that, uh, that our parents make. And, uh, and they're not believing for the children. Like that's also clear because um, what they're, well, let's just read these. You can see what they commit to. So this is what we ask our parents. Do you believe that your child is made in the image of God, created to worship, serve, and enjoy him in all of life? Yes, that's God's design. Then second, do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? This is a parent saying, my child needs to grow up and be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. My child needs the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit. Okay, and then three, do you claim and trust in God's covenant promises on your child's behalf? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation as you do for your own? So this is a parent saying, my child needs, um, like I claim and trust God's promises to me and my children, um, but I also look in faith to Jesus for their salvation like I do my own. So it's not my faith that saves them, it's Jesus that saves them and I'm looking to Jesus. Um, and then the fourth question is, do you promise to instruct your child in the teachings of the Christian faith, to pray with and for them, to live a life in line with the gospel before them and to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so this is, will you raise your children to believe in Jesus? Will you raise them and discipline them so that they will understand the gospel and believe the gospel for themselves? So it's really a call to disciple your children into their own faith and into a deepening um, growth of their faith. So that's what um, parents are committing to when they present their children for baptism. Um, and then the congregation makes a pledge too because it really does take a village. Like your faith um, and your example will be the most powerful, the most powerful thing for your child to experience. And yet, if you have wisdom, you will want your child to be connected to other people who are Christians. You want your child to be connected to other people and to see other examples of people walking with Jesus. I, I've thought about this, especially as a pastor. I have four kids. Now they're 21 to 14, or to almost 14. And especially as a pastor, I desperately want my children's connection to the church to be not just through me or my wife. Because if God forbid anything were to happen in our relationship, I wouldn't want their connection to the church to only come through me because if we get cut off for any reason, I wouldn't want their connection to Jesus or to the church to be cut off. And so, so that's why the congregation, I mean, they're baptized into the family of God. And so that means everybody in the church has some part to play, you know? And I mean, that doesn't mean every person's gonna know your kids, but, um, but, uh, but the idea is that we all as a, as a church family are, wanting to not just encourage the parents because they need it, but we also want to reach out and connect with the kids because they will need it. So 
that's kind of a beautiful thing that happens there. All right, so that's, I feel like if I say, what are the steps to learn more, then that will be you know, more final. So before I talk about what to learn more, we can learn more right now. Um, what other questions do you have based on what we've talked about um, or anything else that we haven't talked about? So the sharing your story part, uh, so does that go before, after, like, what if like our walk with Jesus is still like, I know it's continuing being paved, but mm -hmm. at the same time, like, what if we're still like discovering our purpose within him? And I know people can walk their whole lives without like, a, like truly knowing the purpose and stuff, but like, like what does that look like with sharing your story in correlation to being baptized? If you want to commit to Jesus, you know, you're confessing your sins and you're saying I'm all in with Jesus and wherever he leads, I'm following. Um, and I don't exactly know what that's going to mean, you know, in the future, but I know this. I know that I'm a sinner. I need God's forgiveness. I'm coming to Jesus for forgiveness, and I'm all in with him in the church. Um, then you would, then you come and be baptized, and you could say in your testimony, I'm just starting out. Yeah, <laughs> There's all kinds of things I don't know. There's all kinds of questions I still have, but this is what I know for sure. Okay. I'm a great sinner. Jesus is a great Savior. I'm following him. Okay. So it's more of a communal thing, like just for the church to get to know you, kind of like an elevator speech kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it's a testimony. It's, I wouldn't want to say it like that because it's not okay. just that. It's okay. like that is the most amazing because what you're telling is a story of God yeah. penetrating the earth, right? right. Bringing his, his presence into someone's life, into your life, so, you know? And so. I think this is, this is more of where I'm, I guess I'm going with this without being so direct. I feel with some of the things that have happened to me with my walk is something that I like, it could be very well that it's just, it happened. Like it was like my mind playing tricks on me or if it's actually really like happened. So for me, like I'm still discovering like, what this walk looks like so it's like i don't want to get up there and say these things that have happened to me but like in me like i really believe that those things have happened to me kind of thing so it's like i'm still like i guess that is more where my question was going it's like i'm like discovering like my like that part of my walk kind of thing and i just don't want to say like yeah just like the experience i talked to you on the phone like that like that could be very well in my head and like, and we talked about that. Like, so it's like those kind of things that have like been like kind of pretty much constant, like with my like early walk, but like, I don't want to stand up there and say these things. And then like, yeah. Yeah. So this, th these are great questions. There's a, I'm thinking about the place where Jesus tells people to count the cost. You know, he says, count the cost, you know, don't, and it's, it's almost like he's saying, make sure that you know what you're doing before you decide to say you're following me. And that's, See, that's 100% for me. But it's right. more like, okay. just like, yeah, like the experience, like thinking that like with my walk, that was part of it. And like, just trying to identify what that meant to me, but it could have been very well just my mental state. Yeah. You know, so it's like, I, that part is where, or like, like once you get to know me better, like like there's other things that like have happened to me that it's like just I, I just like even just like recommitting and like being baptized in front of a community and stuff like that. Like like I like yeah, just like I I've been baptized kind of thing, mm -hmm. but like it was not in front of the community, you know, it was just confessing myself to Jesus, my sins oh, yeah. and having the Holy Spirit come upon me, but like those, like, it's just, yeah, I guess. So that's a, so that's one reason why we actually do the interview process. Okay. And so, so yeah, if you want to come and be baptized or have your kids baptized, we want to, like, we'll have an interview with like either me or one of the elders. And cause that gives us a chance to know, have you experienced Jesus? Where are you with Jesus? Do you understand what baptism is? It gives you a chance to ask more questions. And, and in that we can sort of like untangle those knots right. and figure out. And then it's nice because you don't have to figure it out for yourself necessarily. You can say like, well, what do the elders of the church think? 
And if the elders of the church think that there's some confusion here in my experience with God, but they say, I mean, they've heard me say, this is what I believe about Jesus. This is what I believe about myself. This is what I believe about salvation. And they say that, yeah, that actually, that gets you in, then I can have confidence in that and what they're saying. Um, and yeah, sometimes it takes working through with like mature men and women to, for us to even understand what has happened to us with God and to make sense of some of the things that have happened. Because sometimes it's God and we don't understand it. Sometimes it might have been like a false teacher or another kind of spirit. And again, we can try to untangle that knot together. And, and there's no pressure, you know what I mean? There's no pressure to have to rush into this. Okay. Um, but yeah, so let's, yeah, we'll have a, we'll have a meeting and let's, yeah. we'll talk through it. And, uh, but generally, if, if you're committed to Jesus and you understand the gospel and you've confessed your sins and you're committed to following him, then that's all it takes. You know, so baptism is for anybody that is, you know, on their way to eternity, you know, with God. And so, um, yeah, so it's a good question. Thanks for sharing that too, Dale. Other questions? Oh, yes. So the modes. Um, <clears throat> with regard to the modes, there are, so in the New Testament, there are, well, the modes are really, the three modes are dunking, pouring, and sprinkling. Um, and so, I'm trying to think the best way to think about this. Um, throughout the Old Testament, the word sprinkling is used pretty often when it comes to washing with water. It says water is sprinkled or blood was sprinkled. Um, and there are debates whether it's like, this sort of thing or if it's like actually pouring um, when it comes to the New Testament it's interesting because the language some people go like see Jesus went into the water was baptized and then came out of the water you know so like you know it's so obvious it's this dunk they go down under the water and then they come back up and when you read Romans 6 um, which says that we died with Jesus and were raised with Jesus well clearly our baptism you know it should be full immersion in the water uh, the challenge is that I think when you read all of the examples of the relationship between the person and the water and baptism, what actually is happening is that you have a person who is walking into a river. So they're going down into the water and then baptism happens in whatever way that looks and then they are coming up out of the water. And so going down into the water isn't being submerged. And coming up out of the water isn't coming up from underneath the water. It's actually walking into the river or walking out of the river. And that's really clear if you look up all the instances in the Gospels and in Acts. Um, it's really, really interesting because it even says that, I think it's in Luke, because all four Gospels have a story about Jesus' baptism. And they don't contradict, but the details are different. Um, but it says Jesus went into the water to be baptized and then he came up out of the water and was praying and then the Holy Spirit descended on him. And so it's just interesting because in all the movies, you've got Jesus like emerging triumphantly from the water and then the Spirit like descends on him and it's just really, you know, and, and, and that's a wonderful image and it might be the right one, but it might not be because I think entering into the water and coming up out of the water are actually walking down into the river and coming up out of the river. Um, and so, so you have this image of death and resurrection in Romans chapter six. Um, but then you've got, um, then you've got Acts 2.33, which says that when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, God was pouring out the Holy Spirit on his people. And so you have this image of pouring, okay? And so where heaven is being, like heaven is being opened up and the Holy Spirit is being poured out on the church. In 1 Peter 3, 18 to 21, it compares baptism to Noah's flood. And it says that um, in the same way that in the, in the ancient world, the floodwaters were poured out on the earth, but Noah and his family were saved through the ark. So floodwaters of judgment are coming upon the earth at some point in the future, 
and it's the ark of Jesus. It's Jesus who's the ark for us. So we get into the ark and we escape God's judgment that's coming. And baptism is that, is us entering into the ark. And so the water in 1 Peter 3, 18 to 21, again, is being poured out. And so sometimes the water is like a grave in Romans chapter 6. But sometimes the water is like rain falling from heaven in 1 Peter 3 and Acts 2, 33. And so pouring or sprinkling, and sprinkling is the image that's used a lot in the Old Testament. And so you've got pouring, sprinkling, and dunking that are all imaged in the, in the way that baptism is described in, in, the, in the New Testament. And so as Presbyterians, what do we say about mode? We say all the above. <laughs> we just say that the mode doesn't matter, that whether you're dunked or poured on or sprinkled, like it all counts. Because each one of those images conveys something, some aspect of the gospel. Each one of those images, pictures. And so, um, so last year when we did our beach baptisms, we poured over the children, like the infants that were baptized, and then we dunked the adults that were baptized. And so we, we do both. Um, dunking really is more exciting. <laughs> There's just a lot more water. Um, I've been accused of being a pourer who dunks because of how much water I try to pour on people when I do baptisms. And, so, and that's intentional because I'm like, do you want a little bit of the Holy Spirit? Do you want a lot of the Holy Spirit? Let's get as much water on you as we can because that's the image that God is pouring out his full presence and it drenches all of you. Like that's the image. So I'm not particularly fond of sprinkling because it just feels like it's just a little bit of the Spirit. Like that's not... You know, so dunking or pouring is what I prefer. And we don't have a mechanism to dunk people downstairs just because it gets too messy. I guess we could bring in a dunk tank um, of some sort, but we don't do that. We just, so we pour and you get wet enough if I baptize you. Um, so, so yeah, so for us in our church, you can get baptized in whatever mode you want, except that we don't have a mechanism to dunk you. So we will pour huge amounts of water over you that will make you feel like you've been dunked if you get baptized downstairs, but if you, at the beach in a couple weeks, we'll be happy to dunk you or pour over you, whichever you think is the image you want to identify with most. Is there a connection between like holy water, like sprinkling and baptismal water? Um, let's see, uh, no, there isn't. Um, the water becomes special because of the reason it's being used. Um, sanctifying water and saying that it's holy water is something that like is something that i would support in more of like an exorcism kind of way um, we offer prayer i'm trying to think like we don't consecrate the water when we baptize um, we could just because we're saying like this is water that's now no longer ordinary water because we're going to use it to express gospel themes we're going to use it to be either an image of washing sin away or an image of the Holy Spirit being poured out or the image of the grave. And so because of that, it takes on this special meaning. Um, but the meaning isn't like the water itself. It's what the ceremony is. And so I guess I haven't consecrated the water before. And I wouldn't be against doing that necessarily because it really becomes special because of the gospel that's being proclaimed through it. But... Um, but the idea of holy water with exorcism, it seems like that, that might be something that's more appropriate. And that's a whole nother subject that, um, like there's something about authority and location and space and physicality and declaring the authority of Jesus and bringing something that has been, that has had like Jesus's authority invested in it that might become more powerful to like a demonic presence that is trying to pull people away from Jesus where, and, and again, this is a bigger subject and one that not a lot of Presbyterians like to talk about because most Presbyterians don't like to talk about demons and spiritual warfare and stuff. But, um, but I believe that there is a time to consecrate things and spaces, um, especially when it comes to trying to remove demonic influence from a space. But that's a totally different subject that we probably should start talking about right now. Not when it's, 10.04, so.
Um, other questions? Anything else? Yeah. Well, hijack away because I don't think anybody else has questions. So, um, we're looking at First Corinthians seven fourteen. Mm -hmm. It's also talking about the unbelieving husband or wife being made holy by the believing. Right. How do you reconcile? So basically, if children are made holy um, by their parents' holiness, and spouses are made holy by their spouses' holiness, how? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let's see. When, so there, there's, I guess the first thing I would say is that my arguments for infant baptism don't require 1 Corinthians 7 14. So I would use, and just for exactly the reason that you're saying. So in 1 Corinthians 7, there's both this declaration that the child of one or more believing parents is holy, but then right after that it says that. Um, I think it just says that, don't you, it says something like that the unbelieving spouse is made holy by the believing spouse. And so we know that that doesn't mean that the spouse is automatically Christian. Um, it says, um, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Um, yeah, there, I guess there's several things that I would say about this. One is that I think that when households were baptized in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians, any adult who didn't want to ally themselves with Jesus would not have been baptized. Is there a, like, verse I can look up that? Well, it's that it seems like the pattern is that if adults, so in the ancient world, if the head of a household converted to anything, the whole household would start, be, would become that thing, you know? And so um, whether or not they wanted to, because you just, that's what you did. That was just the way things were. And so, generally speaking, that's what would happen. But when it comes to adults, if an adult, so like if the head of a household got baptized, then he would go or she would go to their household and say, this is what's happened to me. And the authority that they had, which was significant over the whole household, would typically just carry and the servants would just follow along. Um, if, a, if, a, if a servant didn't follow along, I don't think that the church would, I, I mean, this is me more reasoning, I think, than a, than a particular, but the studies of households, like if you do, I can give you, there's these three books that were written, um, two by Joachim Jeremias and one by Kurt Alon, where they argue back and forth about household baptisms in the New Testament, and I can give you the chapters where they actually talk about, it's called the Oikos formula, um, and it's based on the understanding of the way that households operated in the ancient world and the biblical data is consistent with that way that it operated in you know outside of the church and so um so there's not a chapter and verse that would say that but the rest of our understanding of what it means to repent and believe um i think would fill in the gaps there and it would say that adults so i would say that if a if a spouse got became a christian and got baptized then it seems like what Paul is saying in verse 16 is, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And I think that the sanctity of the spouse as an adult who doesn't believe is probably that now they're in an environment, they're in a sacred environment where they're really close in relationship with someone who is now following Jesus. And, um, but the, the holiness there of the spouse is different from the holiness of the children. And I don't think that's the most coherent argument. And if 1 Corinthians 7 were the only passage that we had, I would say that we don't have enough data to baptize our kids. Okay. So, is that satisfying somewhat? Yeah. Okay. Um, and then can you explain the Presbyterian, or at least former city's view on why Jesus was baptized when he was? Yes. So, what's exciting, and I've got, I actually have like a seven-page document that I've put together that 
tries to answer the question, like, what are all of the meanings of baptism in the Bible? And, uh, and this has, like, probably 50 or 60 verses, and it groups them together. And so there are, there are two main... Um, see, baptism was something that was practiced outside of the Christian church. It was practiced in the Old Testament. It was also practiced in other types of religions. And so baptism was a thing, and circumcision was the same thing, like other cultures practiced circumcision too. And so there was meaning that baptism had apart from the Christian meaning of it. And those two meanings were one, identification, and two, washing. So to be baptized was to identify yourself with the person into whose name you were being baptized or into the message of the person that you were following into baptism. So there was this identification dynamic that was, that would have, that you were saying, like to be baptized in any environment for any reason was to identify with that person or that movement that you were being baptized into. And then the idea of washing was this, I mean, the water is washing over you. And so it's sort of a symbol of new beginning. It's cleansing from the past, you know, which, and, and both of those images of identification and washing have wonderful gospel-centered themes in them. And so under identification, you've got this idea of repentance. So I've been living in this other way, but now because I'm identifying with this, I'm turning the direction of my life to follow Jesus. Okay, and then you have the Holy Spirit, which is, I mean, this is where the pouring image of baptism becomes wonderful, is that you have God pouring out his Holy Spirit on the one being baptized. And so, because you're identifying with God, God is identifying with you so much that he gives you his Holy Spirit. And so, um, so the identification piece, I think, helps us really understand Jesus' baptism. Because in Mark chapter one, I mean, but all, I think, I mean, all four gospels have this, but it's, it's, it's short and explicit in Mark chapter one, where John is baptizing people for the forgiveness of sins and Jesus comes to be baptized. And I think Jesus is identifying with the message of John. He's not confessing his own sins. He's confessing the sins of his people. And he's saying what John is doing for Israel, I am for. I'm identifying with John and John's message. And then God turns Jesus's identification with John into the anointing moment when Jesus's ministry begins. And so this is the offering song. So. I have a question on that one, if that's okay. Just, um, why didn't Jesus baptize anyone? Um, this is the means of baptism. Why didn't Jesus baptize anyone? Um, I mean, John 4 specifically says that because they were arguing. They were arguing over that. And um, I don't know. Let me, let me think about that some more and I'll get back to you. Okay. Um, let me pray. And then after the service downstairs, if you want to ask more questions or if you want to email me, you can. I've got this Meanings of Baptism in the Bible document that you can grab if you want to dig in some more. Um, so let me pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for baptizing your people into a family and for communicating to us the assurance of our salvation. Um, continue to lead us to go deeper in our understanding of who you are and what you've done for us and help for each of us, help make our baptisms even more significant uh, experiences for us so that we can follow you and encourage others to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.